Great to be here with you. My name is Brandon Barnes. I'm one of the elders here at Groton Bible Chapel, and we are working through uh, week two of Advent. So if you were here last week, uh, you heard Zach talk about uh, Zachariah's song. No coincidence, coincidence there, right? Zach and Zachariah's song. Um, and Zach did a great job of sort of helping us see the hope of Advent, that in Christ's arrival, we have a Savior that can actually fix what is deeply needed. We also saw that in this Savior's power, it's no longer on us to sort of uh, save ourselves, but that we have a Savior that has the power to do that. And finally, the Savior's constancy, consistency, constancy, that God will always do what he says he's going to do. So hopefully, if you had a chance, uh, you were here. If not, go back and re-watch it. It's a great uh, a sermon of hope last week. This morning, we look at uh, Luke chapter 2, and it's the angels' song. Angels proclaiming God's promised rescue to us in Christ for peace. Quick story for you. In 1973, there, was a, uh, there were four Swedish bank workers that were taken hostage. They were taken hostage by two career criminals. While negotiating these demands, these two uh, career criminals held these hostages in a bank vault for six days. For six days. Something odd happened during that time, though. During that time, some of the hostages built up a relationship with these criminals, with their captors, such that the hostages actually advocated for their captors to the prime minister of Sweden and he was, as he was kind of trying to negotiate and manage their release. Now, various criminologists and psychologists sort of debate as to whether or not this term was associated with that event, but somewhere along the way, this this term Stockholm Syndrome was coined. In its simplest definition, it's an alliance or bond forged between captor and hostage, typically through some form of manipulation through brainwashing, where a captor develops sympathy through dependency. How does this occur? Well, psychologists that have studied it sort of break it down this way. Life-threatening experience occurs, intense trauma or terror happens, Freedoms are removed, and then freedoms are replaced or extended basically through manipulation, such as building trust through small acts of, of kindness, like giving a little extra food or water. Manipulation is then masked as virtue, creates kind of a primitive sense of gratitude for your life. A false sense of life and security starts to emerge, and those in bondage begin to think this person is going to let me live and is in fact their savior. Ultimately, a new savior becomes identified of one of those captived, uh, one of those kidnapped. They would go on to say it's, it's a kind of context you get into when all your values, the morals you have, change in some way. Another of the kidnapped victims who was extremely claustrophobic was allowed to leave the vault, which was their prison, but only with a rope fixed around her neck. It was like a leash. She was later quoted as saying she thought it was very kind of her captor to allow her to move around the floor of the bank. Stockholm Syndrome is confusion between captor and liberator. This morning, as we look at this passage, this piece of Advent, and we're gonna look at a, this, uh, the piece of Advent that what it can bring, we're gonna look at a passage that's very familiar, and I think many times we approach Christmas and we just kinda read through it, we go through the motions. But this is a proclamation of true liberation, a song of joyous rescue the revelation of the Messiah to us, 
our Savior, Redeemer. And our question this morning is, can we tell the difference in our world between our liberator and our captor? Why might it be tough for us to see the difference? Before we read this passage, let's uh, open in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we have read this passage multiple times, and sometimes we skim through it. Uh, Sometimes we um, don't put the thought into it that we need to, but Lord, you have made an awesome announcement, proclamation of true peace. Just pray as we read this that our eyes would be opened fresh and new to your word. We trust you, Lord, to speak into our hearts and into our lives. It's in your name we pray, amen. So let's read this together. We're in Luke chapter 2. We're going to read 8 through uh, 17. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel... Uh, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. Now one of the reasons we probably skim over this or, you know, again, if, if you've been around church at all, you've heard this every, every Christmas usually. But if you haven't, you probably heard it from Charlie Brown's Christmas, right? <laughs> Charlie Brown looking for the true meaning of a Christmas. It's finally revealed to him, I think from Linus, right, that, that this is the true meaning of Christmas. And it's been played faithfully in homes and all kinds of different media sources ever since 1965. But a quick background to this passage. This this passage is actually featured only in the book of Luke. Luke's gospel is often referred to as the gospel of four sinners. Why is that? Well, Luke is is believed to be the only uh, uh, non-Jewish writer of of one of the gospels. So he's a Gentile. He was a Gentile. And so there's great sympathy here as a Gentile believer for the acts of Christ coming near coming near. And so we see that in this proclamation that he captures, but we also see that throughout very specific examples in Luke, again, only in Luke's gospel account, do we have the Good Samaritan, the story of the Good Samaritan, or the parable of the repentant tax collector, or the prodigal son, or the story of Zacchaeus in the tree who Jesus calls out specifically to have lunch with him, or the thief on the cross and the salvation of the thief on the cross, or all of, the, uh, all of the, the ways that Luke will esteem and show the esteem that Christ had for women. It's very unique. It's very unique. Luke portrays Jesus in no uncertain terms as the liberator that we need of a Christ that comes near to the sinner and the birth of Jesus being at the forefront of these. So let's look at, we're going to kind of move through the passage in three, in three points and three chunks. Let's start with the first one. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord peered to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And then here's two key words I want you to listen to. They were terrified, but the angel said, 
don't be afraid. So there's terror and there's fear as the immediate reactions of the shepherds. And of course, we'd say the same thing. If an angelic presence came before us, it would, it would startle us, it would scare us, let alone after that a host of angels lighting up the sky. It, it, we see that as terror. But if we consider closely what's going on here, fear of our redeemer, fear of our creator, fear of our true liberator is due to the Stockholm Syndrome of our own hearts. We have settled into bondage. War is what we know as human beings. Why do I say that? Well, if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, so you're going to put your finger here in Luke, and we're going to flip back to Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to look at the first time in the Bible we see the word afraid. Afraid. The Bible tells us that man and woman walked with God, that man and woman had a relationship with God, that they were communing with him. Man and woman chose to distrust God's life-giving words for them. They chose to believe a lie that they, in fact, could be their own determiners of right and wrong. It was a job they were never intended to have from a creator whose loving shoes they could never feel, fill. So when the man and the woman chose to disobey God, the very first encounter they had with God after that turns from loving fellowship to fear, and it's the first time we see the word afraid. Genesis 3.10 says, The Lord called to the man, where are you? And the man, instead of coming out and walking with God, says, I heard you and I was afraid. God and man move from positions of loving communion to actually what the Bible will term as enemies. Enemies, Romans 5.10, for while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled. It's going to take a savior to reconcile us back. War then becomes what we know. War would become familiar from then on in history. The Bible doesn't give us nearly as many pictures of humanity at peace as we see humanity in strife and struggle. And the Old Testament is characterized by nations coming up against Israel, constant war. When we get to the New Testament, we see a church under constant persecution. War is what they know. Adam and Eve chose to be their own gods in Genesis 3, 8 through 19. We see what happens in the kind of war that breaks out. Look at Genesis 3, 8. So the first one we see here, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid. They hid. God's creation go from walking in joy with their creator to now shamefully hiding. And, you know, we live in a culture where we see this has played out over a long period of time. We are in conflict about what we were made for. God made us to enjoy him and to live in full security of his goodness. Now, just ask anyone this question and watch their answer. Ask anyone this question. What are human beings for? What are we for? No, you don't have to answer. I'm just saying, ask any, anybody that Listen to the answers. People lack agreement about the nature of the common good, purpose, and meaning, how human flourishing should occur. We can't agree on it because we hid from God to begin with, the source of our agreement, the source of our identity. But it goes on. Genesis 3.10, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, and hear this point, because I was naked, because I was naked. 
So we have this war, not just from our beginnings and, and a war against who created us and what we're for, but we have this war against our bodies now. Our mind and our bodies are not aligned. The war against God has brought us to a point where we're left to determine exactly what our bodies are designed for. Listen to what God says in response. He says, who told you you were naked? Who told you you were naked? Suddenly, all security in our bodies, of our perception of ourselves, of our perception of each other, our created image, is left completely vulnerable. In other words, it's as if God was saying, you were clothed perfectly in my righteousness and my goodness for what I said you were and who you are, but you were deceived into believing you could see each other better than I see you, and now you are left insecure. Who told you you were naked? Brothers and sisters, there's powerful therapy here. We experience war between our mind and our bodies, our body image, because we stopped trusting in the security and the identity of who God says we are and how he created us uniquely to be. In the way we view our bodies and the way we perceive our bodies, we are... We are drastically insecure. Probably one of the largest areas we're seeing in America today is eating disorders between men and women, women and men. A lot of people think it's just a a female issue. It's not at all. Conservatively, 30 million people in the United States have reported this issue. And, And disordered eating and dangerous weight loss are difficult to diagnose because they've become so normalized in our culture. Dieting, clean eating, compulsive exercise, surgeries are all precursors or masks to full-blown disorders. It crosses gender and it crosses ethnicity. The war between our minds and bodies has created anxiety and it's created worry. And I'm not trying to be trite. I'm not trying to oversimplify this. What I'm saying is that war is what we know because of our desire to live apart from a creator and it's caused a massive identity crisis in our physical minds and our physical bodies. So we now have war from our beginnings and war from from who created us. We have war um, in our mind and bodies. Then Genesis 3.12 goes on to say we have war with each other. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. We now blame, we now victimize. We lost our unity with one another. This Adam and Eve were intended to be helpmates with each other, were intended to be partners, and now you see them turn on each other. We shift responsibility away from ourselves and away from our own actions in a way to make ourselves look better than we really are. We condemn in others that which we quickly forgive in ourselves. And then look at Genesis 3.19. We see war against our environment and war against our ultimate destiny. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you will return. God created man in concert with the materials he gave us in our environment. Our connection to the earth has always been a deep part of us. Boston College theologian Peter Kreef says, when Adam fell our earth fell with us, for we were its custodian and priest. In fact, the earth is like our extended body. Our environment becomes a hostile place, does it not? If war against each other doesn't get us first, ultimately we'll, become, we'll, we'll be overcome by disease, we'll be overcome by natural disaster, or long-term effects of our environment, which is old age. War 
is what we know. Given everything I just said in Genesis 3, hopefully the words of hope, the gospel proclamation that the angel says becomes that much sweeter. War is so deeply embedded in our hearts that the shepherds were terrified, as we would be as well, at the notion of true liberation. But you know what they do? They hear it, they receive it, and they move towards it. If war is what we know, then in fact, how can we internalize and receive the same peace that the shepherds did? It brings us to our next point. Look at the... Look at what the angels say. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Peace, as we see through this Savior, is going to come through war, not around it. Peace comes through war. We need a Savior. The angelic pronouncement isn't that we're receiving a king, but that we're receiving a Savior. Certainly, this Jesus is king, but in the proclamation here, Jesus, a a king, as we would rightly understand, would be someone that would come and would bring peace on earth in a different way, you know, from a top-down sort of approach. But Jesus will actually come, and he will be brutally tortured and killed by his very own. So how will this Savior bring peace? Well, the idea of peace is, is fascinating, as I've been studying this, because you can't understand peace without struggle, right? Peace is, is because of war. Um, some examples, for instance, you, you take a vacation. Usually you ask somebody how their vacation was, and they say, oh, it was really restful. It was restful because they came out of a time of stress and, and, and strife, right? When the kids finally go off to college and there's an empty nest, you sort of sense from the parents, like, ah, why? Because that struggle at home is, put to, is put, uh, put to rest. Probably the most common aspect of peace that we sense is fullness. Fullness. What do I mean by that? In my home, in our, ha- in our house, the two sources of strife are when we get lost and we're hungry. I don't know if anybody else can relate to that, right? When you find where you're going and you get to a restaurant, what happens? Fullness and peace, right? <laughs> Peace is experienced or felt when our deepest longings or needs are fully met. St. Augustine, the, uh, church historian, theologian, said, peace is not merely the absence of war. Ultimately, he says, it is the rest in our end. Put another way, we can't find rest and peace until we find something ultimate to put that in. And then he goes on to say, because thou hast made us for thyself, therefore our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. When the angels tell the shepherds a Savior has been born, it's not just a generic Savior, but it's a personal Savior that has come to do war in your heart. The war you experience in your hearts, you can't escape. It's going to be dealt with as a Savior. And how is he going to do that? Because that original relationship that was broken in the garden is the relationship that Christ is coming to mend. And he is going to give you that ultimate peace that Augustine is talking about. And until you find that peace in Christ and what he will do for you on the cross, you will never find peace in this world. Because Jesus did war for us, those who receive him and his offer as Savior, he provides us what's called deep-rooted peace. Look at John 14, 23 and 27. Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. And then listen to this hope. My Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. 
peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. He's giving us something different. When he says, my peace I give you, he's saying he's not giving you what the world claims is peace. He's giving you true peace, the peace you need, the assurance that in Christ, any and every war you face with your body, with that difficult relationship, with that difficult job circumstance, with, that broke, with the broken effects we have of, of a relationship with our environment, that we can rejoice and we can actually consider what depth and length and care Christ has gone to save you from that struggle. You have this perspective. You can step back with these worries and fears and anxieties and see them now as a misplaced hope for something or someone to give you what only Jesus can. So let me put this to you some way practical. This is, this is uh, uh, something I'll be vulnerable for a minute and share. Often, I don't, I don't necessarily wrestle with body images, but I certainly wrestle in a war between my mind and my body with something called people-pleasing. It's hard for me uh, to find rest at times from wanting to make everybody happy and wanting people to be happy. A couple of years ago, we did a, we did a study in the Young Adult Program, a summer study called Gospel in Life. I remember gluing some passages together that like, really spoke to me. How do I apply this peace? How do I apply this gospel deep into my life in a way that's practical, that helps me when I feel this conflict of people-pleasing? And this is what I came up with. And this is why it's so important for us to know the word of God, because you can do the same thing. Think of anything you're anxious or worried about and do this. Listen to this. This is what I do. Lord, when I forget the gospel, I become dependent on the smiles and evaluations of others. I let them sit in judgment on me, and then I hear all their criticism as a condemnation of my very being. But you have said there is no condemnation for me now, Romans 8.1. You delight and sing over me, Zephaniah 3, 14 through 17. Let me be satisfied with your love, Psalm 90, 14. Please remove my idol of approval, which can never give me the approval I need. Do you see it? That's deep peace that we can have through the word of God and through the truth of the gospel in our lives. Deep peace rooted because Jesus went to war for me. But here's the thing. Jesus, just as Jesus went to the war for our peace, we have to do the same thing. We're called not to just receive that peace and sit. We're actually called to be active peacemakers. Meaning we're to work for peace in a world not by avoiding hard things, but instead in full assurance of our anchored peace, demonstrating how the truth of that in the Bible works out. This is hard because it's, we like false peace, let's be honest. In our home, at two two kids when they became teenagers, if you had to ground one, it kind of meant like the whole house shut down, like we, we couldn't do anything fun, like one kid's grounded, like, so it's sometimes it's a little easier to, for me, and my wife is nodding her head, I'm sure, um, to sort of, well, maybe we let this go because we all want to go have fun, right? But what happens? You didn't solve the problem. It's false peace. I can tell you as elders here at the chapel, it's very difficult to confront people in their messy lives, and sometimes we just want to get to grace. Maybe we should show grace. Maybe we should grow. You know what? We can't show grace until we've spoke truth. Amen. Ephesians 4.15 reminds us that. Instead, speaking truth in love, we will grow. There's a combination of truth and love that happens before growth can occur. We can't skip those just to get to peace. 
Jesus did the war to give us peace. Where have you allowed bitterness to grow because you have not confronted? Where have you shut someone out of your life because it's easier to ignore them than to move towards them in that relationship? We are to build roots and we're to allow flowers of peace grow. Sometimes we just want those flowers, but we haven't built the roots. What happens in a storm to flowers? They blow off first, right? The first thing toppling down the road. The roots keep you grounded in peace. Finally, this passage tells us liberation has to be recognized and received for peace to be applied. Said another way, peace is invitational. Take a look at this final portion. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. It's not everybody on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child. Peace is invitational. The angels invite the shepherds wasted no time in responding. So I want to come back to this idea of liberation that we started out with, this analogy of Stockholm Syndrome. What have you settled for in your liberation? Can you tell your liberator this morning from your captor? Does your liberator keep a rope around your neck connecting you back to your past failures and hurts? Does your liberator hold out hope for a certain future and then close it in your face only to keep you bound by its demands. Maybe it's that idea, if I just put in some more time at work, I can get that promotion, but it's only causing further damage in your home. Maybe it's that person you think, if I just try harder to please, if, if I just compromise a little more and more of my integrity, they'll eventually love me the way I want to be loved. Maybe it's the battles we've talked about this morning between your mind and your body, how you see yourself, your insecurities, maybe just one more surgery will fix it. Is that your liberator? I heard a great definition of delusion. Delusion's when your brain gets tired of hearing what you say you are versus what you really are. Delusion. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. This baby will grow to be a man, a man that says the way to peace has to be recognized. In fact, Jesus will say to the Pharisees who are, who are saying, just one more rule and we can get right with God. Just one more rule, follow this, and you can have a right relationship with God. Jesus says, John 10, 7 through 14, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, false peace, false peace. But the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. Pasture. True peace. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come that they might have life and life to the full. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep. And hear this, my sheep know me. My sheep know the true liberator. I want to close with one more story. Back in 2013, some of you may remember this, 
there was a dramatic rescue of some U.S. aid workers in Somalia. While on a, on a trip to get some training, their, their van was hijacked and they were kidnapped. And they were actually held for over three months before being um, rescued by an elite group of Navy SEALs. One of, the, uh, one of those rescued, her name was Jessica Buchanan. She wrote this book. Or this book was about her, Impossible Odds. On the night of her rescue in a podcast, she sort of described it this way. This is a transcript, so I'm going to try to do my best to read it kind of the way that, that she did. She said it. But this is, this is her powerful account recollection of what happened. I laid there for probably five minutes. Then the entire night just erupted into automatic gunfire. My first initial thought is that we were being re-kidnapped by another group. If another Islamic military group, which was always the imminent threat, uh, were to take us, then I knew there was no hope for survival. And I just, I laid there and I prayed and I also just said, like, I can't survive another kidnapping. I've already learned this group. I'm so tired. I can't do this anymore. The next thing I know, somebody pulls the blanket from my face and then I hear a man say my name. You know, I haven't heard anybody say my name in so long at this point. And then he says, we're the American military and we're here to save you. We're here to take you home. You are safe now. And I was just in so much shock. I couldn't wrap my brain around it. The American military, they knew I was here. Americans are here. I'm not alone. One of them just scoops me up. I mean like a movie and just runs, you know, across the desert with me to a safe place. And they quickly give me medication. And at one point, listen to this, they form a ring around us because they weren't sure if the premise was completely safe. Rescue is a powerful thing, and there was no mistaking her liberation. Why? Because in contrast to a captor who didn't call her by her name, she was assured in her identity. Are we? In contrast to her uncertain security, they demonstrated control. Does your savior? In contrast to isolation, they surrounded her, and in contrast to despair, she was given hope and a future. Do you have that this morning? Do you know your liberator? Do you know who you're held captive by? Have you accepted true peace, or is peace for you like those flower petals? Holding on, waiting in anxiety for that next storm to have to rebuild. War is what we know. Jesus went to war on the cross to save our deepest needs and extends to you and to me true peace rooted deeply and secure in what Jesus says about you. And the length that he would go to give you peace, this allows us then to be peacemakers, to confront well in truth and love. Look at Titus 3. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we'd done, but because of his mercy. Peace is an invitation. Jesus comes as our Savior King. What better way this morning to proclaim in your own life Jesus as your Lord and Savior by remembering, remembering what he did for us. We experience a lot of disruptions in our peace. And Christ deliberately tells us to remember because he knows that. He knows that. 
If you've accepted this peace that comes as an invitation, if you have received this peace by proclaiming in your own life your total inadequacy, your inability on your own to be your savior, then this is for you. If you're not sure this morning, if you haven't made that commitment, we ask you just to to pass it along. But let's do this together. Matthew 26, 26 through 28 says, while they were eating, Jesus took the bread And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. We're gonna pray and then we're gonna take this together. Lord, thank you. God, our Father, thank you for your son, Jesus. For the eternal peace procured at great cost to yourself. Jesus, your broken body was given to mend our relationship to the Father a sacrifice you joyfully fulfilled in obedience and submission. We could never thank you enough. Thank you. Just take the bread. Matthew 26, 26 to 28 goes on, says, Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's pray and then we'll take the cup. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice as the Savior we need. We follow you as the king of our lives and look forward to the day when you will rule as king as promised in Isaiah. When Isaiah says, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. We can't wait. We receive you as the peace we need in our lives, and we look forward to you as our king. Let's take the cup. War is what we know. Peace comes through war. Peace is an invitation to deep and abiding. Jesus is an invitation to deep and abiding peace. What a gift. Do you understand your liberator this morning?